Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. lesson is from Colossians chapter 3 verses 15 through 17 and when I'm finished I'll say this is the word of the Lord and please respond thanks be to God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be back here with you all after being in South Burlington last week for our Family of Churches conference. Uh, As encouraging and as uplifting as those conferences can be, it is always nice to be back home. So I'm so thankful uh, that we can all be here together today worshiping the Lord. Uh, Now, two weeks ago, Paul, not the uh, Apostle Paul, but, but Pastor Paul, uh, taught on Colossians 3, 5 through 14. And he led you to the picture of the new life in Christ being this putting, putting off of the old self and putting on of the new self. The new self who, who you were, or sorry, putting off of the old self, is meaning this person that you were before Christ with all of its sinful passions and desires and behavior, and then the putting on of the new self, which is the new person that you are now in Christ if you are a believer. And this is an important picture that we see here in Colossians because the person that you are now, right, is, is radically different than who you once were. And the miracle that that Jesus does in your heart as you believe in him is so immense that it is as if you are a completely and utterly different person. And the reason is because you you, you simply are. You are a, a different person. You once had an identity that was the culmination of, of many things, right? The culmination of many things. Your identity may have been found in your job may have been found in your family, as, as an American maybe. Your, your past experiences had an influence on, on what your identity was, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, your identity before Christ was that of a lost sinner, of a lost sinner. That was, that was your, your ultimate and truest identity. But now, if you are a true Christian, If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, your identity is actually none of those things. Who you are on the deepest level is no longer any of those things that once defined you as a person. And sure, some of those things have an impact on on your personality and, and what makes you, you, but on the deepest and most fundamental level of who you are, you are a beloved child of God. You're not not defined by who you once were outside of Christ anymore. That's not not you. You are now in Christ as he is in you. 
What a, what a wonderful truth that is. That's a truth that we can come back to again and again, even, even when we sin and even when we, when, we, when we mess up. We can still go back to our true identity and know that forgiveness is there. And so Paul encourages us. He encourages the, the church in uh, or Colossae and you and I to, to not live in the old self any longer, but to live triumphantly in the new self. Now, Pastor Paul, beginning in verse 12, a couple weeks ago, he walked through how this new self is to, is to kind of spill out onto how we interact and treat one another within the church, right? He talked about how we are to have compassionate hearts, how we are to have kindness and humility and meekness and patience, and how we are to, to forgive one another as Jesus forgave us. Those are the, the virtues that are meant to, uh, the, meant to permeate our life and our re interactions with one another. And then Pastor Paul also talked about what binds all of these new self-attributes together is love. It's love. Love, verse 14 says, binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, with love being what should drive all of our interactions with one another and all of our thoughts about one another, the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 15, going through verses 17, continues to give four more commands to the church that flow from the new self in which we are to now live as believers. But before we look at those four commands, let us first pray for our time together this morning. Lord, we thank you so much, God, for your mercy. God, just being here this morning is, is evidence of that mercy, God. Lord, because even though, Lord, we are, we are new creations in Christ, Lord, we still love you imperfectly. We still wrestle with our old selves. And yet, despite that, God, you continue to love us and show us mercy. And so we thank you that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning to lift up your name, to hear your word preached. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, this morning guides our time together and protects us from error. And I pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right. So as we begin with the first command that Paul gives us in our passage this morning, I want us to take a look one more time at verse 14. At verse 14, where Paul says, Above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. When we put on the love of Christ, which is the summation of all of these wonderful attributes we have seen in verses 12 through 13, Paul says that it, that it binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's what love does. It binds everything together in that harmony. Now, I believe this can be meant in, in two ways. The first is that love binds all of the virtues of verses 12 and 13 together in harmony. Love, again, like I said before, being the culmination of it all. It binds all of those virtues together. You could just say, that's love, right? But another way to understand 
this is that love, being the culmination of all of these virtues, binds together everything in the sense that it binds together the church in perfect harmony. Now, I want to ask you a question. Could you imagine the harmony that would be present in the church if what everyone here was most concerned about, most concerned about, was loving each other well? If that was your, that was your primary concern when you entered into the doors of Redeemer Church, that was your primary concern, how you could love others well. If we came to the church, our first thought wasn't, what am I going to get out of coming here this morning? But instead, Lord, show me how I can love my brothers and sisters well this morning. And that is not to say that we shouldn't go to church looking for, for support and love and teaching from one another, but often a problem can arise inside of the church. Consternation can can. can boil to the surface in a church when those in the congregation or, or those in, in leadership are far more concerned about what they can get out of their church rather than the love that they can give to those inside of it. But Paul's focus here is not, hey, be sure that everyone in the church is loving you perfectly. It's not, it's not his focus here. That, that you need to be concentrated and being sure that everyone is loving you perfectly the way that you want to be loved because you deserve it, darn it. Paul is not saying in this verse, make sure everyone else is putting on love, right? What is he saying? He's saying, you put on love. Put on love. You be sure that as part of the body of Christ, you are loving others with a Christ-like love that is compassionate, that is kind, that is humble, patient, and most importantly, forgiving. Forgiving. Christ loves us perfectly, even though we don't love Him perfectly, right? And he died to bring perfect harmony in the church and the universe as a whole, as chapter 1, verse 20 says. And so we should strive to have that Christ-like love for one another, even when one of us fails at showing that love well to you. Because brothers and sisters, we are a body of Christ, right? But we are sinners still. We are sinners saved by grace. We are going to fail one another at some point in time. It will happen. It may have already happened. But we are to forgive one another as Christ forgave us. That is how harmony is, is cultivated inside of the church through the love of Christ. When we are focusing most on our loving others like Christ rather than being loved ourselves, harmony will pour into our midst. Now, Paul continues this theme of harmony in verse 15. I want you to take a look at the first sentence of verse 15. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now, what is amazing is that on the cross of Christ, on, on the cross, he bought with his blood a holy and wonderful reconciliation, right? 
He reconciled us to himself by paying the price that we owed for our sin. Now, another way to kind of word this reconciliation is peace. He bought us peace on the cross. And because of that, we now have peace with God. How wonderful is that? And this peace is what Paul is referring to as the peace of Christ. This deep abiding peace that Christ bought on the cross for us. Amen. Amen, sister. Now, often when we think of peace, in our minds, I think we see pictures of, of sandy beaches, right? And, and fluffy clouds and, and everything being perfect in our life. That is kind of the, the picture that we have as what peace is. But friends, that is not the peace of Christ. That's not the peace that he is talking about. The peace of Christ is not this, this kind of general sense of inner peace that we are to feel because everything is going perfectly in our lives. It's not what he's talking about. Rather, true peace is established in our hearts and in our church by believing and meditating not on the situations that surround us on this earth, because that will, that will rarely bring us any semblance of, of lasting peace, maybe, maybe momentary peace, but not lasting peace. But true peace comes from believing and meditating on the peace of Christ, on that peace on the reality of the reconciliation that has been made for you on the cross of Jesus. True peace in your life comes from knowing and loving Jesus and being known and loved by Him. Peace comes from the reality that we will be walking in the sun with Him throughout the rest of eternity. Brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how important this is because this means that peace is not situationally based. It's not situationally based. It's not based on, on horizontal earthly situations. It can't be, right? It can't be. Because the situations in our life, they, they change with the wind. They change more frequently than the weather does. But what doesn't change what is, what is immovable is your eternal destiny and the fact that you are loved as a child by the God who spoke the universe into being. That's where the, the anchor, the, the root of our peace must come from. This is why Paul in Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me read that one more time. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God surpasses all understanding because you could be walking through hell on earth and everyone around you would look at you, and based on your situation, they would have no possible idea, no, no understanding at all how you could possibly be at peace. It would surpass understanding. But all the while, you know that your eternal life is secured in Jesus, that you have been washed clean of all sin, and that you have been reconciled to God. And because the peace you have is a peace of God, is the peace from God. Your heart and your mind are 
guarded. They're protected. They're safe. And nothing in this world can overcome you because you are in Him. As we've been looking at in Colossians 3, you are in Him and Christ is in you. You are in Him who has overcome the world. The Puritan Thomas Watson said it this way. He said, if God be our God, He will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, meaning when there is a storm outside of us, He will make peace within. The world can create trouble in peace, but God can create peace in trouble. That is the peace of Christ. That is the peace that is to dwell in our hearts. That is the peace that is to rule in our hearts and to guide us and to to overwhelm us in times of trouble. Now, what does he mean by this peace being something to which indeed you are called in one body? What I believe Paul means here is that you, believer, were called. You are set apart by God from the foundations of the earth to experience this peace in your heart, not alone, but alongside other believers. And as we practice Christian love to one another in the church and as the church, we showcase to the world the peace that was bought for us by Christ on the cross. We showcase it. We display it. The peace in the body, in the church, is to reflect the peace that we now have with God, right? And so let us strive and contend for that kind of love, harmony, and peace for and with one another. This should be a peaceful place. This should be a place where people can look in and they can can see the peace of God active, Now, on to the second command. In this second command, I'm going to, uh, to, to just kind of mention briefly because it is a reoccurring theme we will talk about again in maybe two more times, actually, in this sermon. But take a gander, if you will, at the second sentence of verse 15 in our second command from Paul. With the reality of the love and peace we have with God and share with one another, being permeating in the church, Paul now commands us to be what? Second sentence of verse 15. Be thankful. We're to be thankful, right? This topic of thankfulness is actually one I've been pondering on quite a, quite a lot recently. And the reason is because I can often catch myself being, being kind of rather grumbly, you know? Being, uh, being, you know who Eeyore is from Winnie the Pooh? I can be, I can be pretty Eeyore-ish. And I have so much to be thankful for. So much. I can't even, I can't even name all the, all the blessings that I should be exuberant and excited and, and thankful to God for. And yet my ungrateful mind and heart will choose to only focus on those things in my life that I wish were better those things that I have refused to to give up to God, maybe, in thankfulness. And don't get me wrong, we have things in our lives that, that happen to us in this life, true struggles that do hurt us deeply and cause us to weep. 
It's not saying that we should ignore those things, or those things don't actually exist, because they do. But friends, we have to remember that we have a promise made to us by God himself. That those deeply troubling things in our lives, one, will not be forever. They will not be forever. And that they, when compared to what is in store for us in heaven and the new earth that is to come, those, those difficult things that we face, those, those heartaches, those, those painful moments when we, when we lose someone, when we don't know what to do, when we feel just, just lost, those hard moments won't even be worth remembering, won't even be worth comparing to the weight of glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so we have so much to be thankful for. And so it is my prayer that for myself and for the flock that the Lord has placed in mine and the other elders' care, that the Holy Spirit rile within our hearts, and listen closely, that the Holy Spirit rile within our hearts an affection for God that is magnified in a way that is proportional to the truth that we're hearing right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know that can be kind of a confusing sentence. Let me explain. We're, we're talking right now, right? We're, we're, we're talking about the, the glories of heaven, right? That's, that's the weight of glory that is ours, right? We're talking about heaven. We're talking about the riches of walking in the sun with Jesus for all eternity and all of the splendor that surrounds that. All of the beauty and wonder and, and just, I can't even think of another word. And so we should desire and pray that the Holy Spirit works up inside of us a rejoicing and thankfulness that is as grand as that wonderful hope that is ours. Right? We have this beautiful, amazing, larger-than-life hope that is ours, and yet sometimes our, our thankfulness is down here. Our thankfulness is small and weak, and we should pray that the Holy Spirit lifts up our gratitude, lifts up our thankfulness to match the hope that is ours. Does that make sense? We should pray for that. We should be exuberant and overflowing with thankfulness to our Lord because we as believers have the ability to peer over the horizon of this life, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, and see the joy that awaits us on the other side. We have every reason to be thankful. And so let us be that. Let us be a thankful people. Not a grumbling people. But again, we will touch on that more in a little bit. So let's move on for now. Now the third command Paul gives us is found in verse 16. And this command kind of has two, shall we say, uh, kind of sub-commands underneath it. But let us first look at the overarching command. Paul tells us we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you Richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, the word of Christ is not simply the, the red letters that you may find in the Gospels. Those specific words that Jesus spoke during his earthly ministry, though, though it does include that, right? It's not, it's not less than that, for sure. Rather, the word of Christ is the entirety of Scripture and all that it teaches from Genesis to Revelation. All of it. It's all of it. 
All of it is the word of Christ in that Jesus is the heart and substance of it all. Christ is the focal point of all of God's revelation in Scripture. And it is that word that we are told in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is God-breathed. It's theonoustos. It is God-breathed. He is the ultimate author and that everything it contains, or it contains rather, everything that we need for living the righteous and godly life. Yeah. It has within it everything we need. The preface to uh, the Geneva Bible that was printed in 1560 sums up what the word of Christ is. Gives a good definition of it. This is what it says. It is the light to our paths. The key to the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. I can't, I can't think of a better definition for God's word than that, of Christ's word than that. And so it's no wonder Paul wants the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, Christ's word is not to just be an accessory to our Christianity, brothers and sisters. It is to be its lifeblood. And so Paul's desire for the Colossians and for all members of the body of Christ is to be so captivated by his word that your Bible study isn't just a chore that you feel you must do. But that you, like David, thirst for Scripture. You thirst for Scripture because it is within its pages that you hear the very voice of God speaking to you. That, you. that you pant for it as a deer pants for the water of a stream. Not only that, but that the Holy Spirit should be your prayer that the Holy Spirit, through your pouring over and pondering Scripture, takes these words of God and hides them in your heart. So much so that the way that you think, the way, the way that, you, that you speak, the very way in which you see the world around you is utterly transformed. It's completely transformed by the Word of God. Now James gives a very apt description of how we too often go to the Bible, of how, how we... How we, we Go to the Bible in, in a negative way. And in John, or sorry, James 1, he says, We often go to Scripture like a man who goes to a mirror, and as soon as he looks away, he forgets what he looks like. Have you, have you heard that passage before? So what James is getting at is that we often go to Scripture and read the very words that have been breathed out by God, but because we are approaching it like a, like a chore, just like an item on a checklist. Because we're approaching it in that manner as something that we must do, we aren't, we aren't moved by it. We're not, we're not touched by it. We're not changed by it. That means we're not allowing it to dwell in us and affect our whole person. And so Paul is saying, don't be like that. Allow the word of Christ, allow scripture to dwell in you richly and have an impact on how you live your Christian walk, how you live your life. And if you need, friends, if you need help studying your Bible, if you don't know where to begin, find us. 
find me, Paul, or Ethan, and we would love to help you know where to start, how to study your Bible. We, we want to help you with that. Now, as the Word of Christ begins to take root in us, it will begin to saturate us in every way, right? It should. That, that should be the outcome of that. Even the way that we minister to one another, which is kind of our first sub-point. Paul says to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly. And he isn't just speaking individually here. Remember, he's speaking to the church as a whole. We are to have the Word of Christ dwell in us as the body of Christ richly, therefore teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Friends, if I, if I love you, if I, if I truly love you, what should be my primary desire for you? My deepest desire for you should be what, what Pastor Paul spoke of last week. My, my greatest desire for you is to, to see you put off your old self and to put on your new self. To see you grow in Christ's likeness more and more. That is what I should long for you. That's what, that's what truly loving you means. That's what, that's what I, should, I should deeply desire when I look at you. I should want to see you grow in your sanctification, in your Christ-likeness. And so far away from the individualistic, modern understanding of how faith is to be just completely personal, we actually have a responsibility to one another when it comes to our Christ-likeness. We have a responsibility to teach each other in the faith to take the things that we are learning from the Word of God and pour into each other's lives to teach one another. We're not meant to live our Christian lives apart from one another. And we are to do this for one another. And it will, it will look different for each of us, right? It's not going to look the exact same. I am called as a, as a pastor, as an elder, to teach in this way, right, from the pulpit. You may be called to, to teach in, in a class or, or, or in a small group or in kids' ministry or in a women's group or in a men's group or, or in your home or, or individually as you counsel another believer. But we are all called to teach one another and point each other to godly living in Christ as taught to us from Scripture. We must get away from this thinking that our faith is just simply personal and nothing else. Jesus never intended for us to walk alone, and so do not shirk your responsibility to have the Word of Christ dwell in you and to teach one another. Now, I think many of us would probably wish that Paul stopped there, right? Just with teaching. Because as hard as it can be to teach in these variety of ways, it is far more difficult to do the next bit. To admonish one another. That's right. But it is just as important. And our desire for one another to grow in Christ's likeness, and as we move forward together as one body, striving for unity, because we still live in a fallen world, and because we are still yet wrestling with our old selves, we're still going to fall into sin, right? We're going to mess up. Uh, correcting, yeah. And as much as we do not like it, we need each other to, to rebuke us, right? To correct us. 
and call us to repentance when we fall. A good doctor doesn't remain silent when their patient is living an unhealthy lifestyle. Nor should we when our brother or sister is living in sin. We need each other for admonishment, for correction. We need one another to call us back to the reality of who we are in Christ, as painful as that can be sometimes. However, as Paul says, we must remember to do both of those things, to teach and correct in all wisdom. Now, it is important that we understand what Paul means here by wisdom. Now, by wisdom, do you think that Paul is meaning that we are to teach and admonish one another in all human wisdom? No. Do you think that, that we should take a look at what is going on in someone's life and speak into it based off of our own understanding and from what we personally think is best? No. Far from it. You see, this command to teach and admonish one another is wholly dependent on the command that came right before it. If the Word of God is not dwelling in you, then your teaching and admonishment, your correction of someone else, has no authority upon which you're actually basing it, other than yourself. The teaching and the admonishing that you do should never be based on your own feelings or thoughts on the matter. It must be based on the wisdom of God that is found in His Word. Now, not only should the Word of Christ dwelling in us lead us to teaching and admonishing one another, but the next sub-point is that it should also lead us to celebration. Right? I love this one a lot. I love it so much because, because when we often think of Paul, right? We think of a, a stern man, kind of a, a stick-in-the-mud kind of guy. And we also think of that when we think of the Apostle Paul, too. <laughs> Got, him. Got him. This is Pastor Paul over here for anybody who doesn't know. But look at how Paul ends verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at the teaching and the admonishing. What does this good uh, this, this stick in the mud Apostle Paul say? He says, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And there's that theme of thankfulness again. He doesn't just stop with the teaching, the admonishing, uh, that being an outpouring of letting the, the Word of God dwell in you richly, but another aspect of that, another natural conclusion of letting the Word of God dwell in you richly is singing songs, is singing hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And friends, I, I love that so much because being part of, because part of being transformed by the indwelling word of Christ is not that we simply grow in our knowledge of theology, in our knowledge of God. That is good, right? We desperately need that. But the word of Christ, as we are saturated by it, should also lead us to being a people marked by rejoicing. Right? By celebrating. As we read God's Word and understand that the entirety of it is all about the beautiful person of Christ, as Heather so wonderfully put last Sunday, our hearts should be moved to rejoicing and praise. Right? 
It should be proportional to the truth that we know in our hearts, right? What I said earlier. This, this wonderful truth is, is so amazing and wonderful, but so much our, our rejoicing is down here. It needs to be proportional. That's the, that's the outcome of allowing ourselves to, to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Paul says something very uh, similar to this in Ephesians 5. In verses 15 through 17, Paul is telling the church in Ephesus that they should walk through life with wisdom and in a godly manner. That's kind of what he's getting at there. But then in verses 18 through 20, he says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in what? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. I love the phraseology there. Making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, the church is not to be a gloomy place. The church isn't to be a gloomy place, but a place of rejoicing and singing and praise. Because while, yes, the world is dark and terrible and evil things happen all around us and even to us, we know what the future holds. We know what the future holds. We know that glory awaits just around the corner. When we sing here in a few minutes, brothers and sisters, allow heaven to fill your minds and hearts as we rejoice in the Lord. Now, not only should I sing, because I know that, as Paul said just a few verses earlier, here in Colossians 3, verse 3, that when Christ returns, I will be there too. I am going to be there with Him in glory when He returns. So I shouldn't be rejoicing just because I know that that is true for me, but I should be rejoicing, brothers and sisters, that when I walk through those doors on Sunday morning and I see all of my brothers and sisters here who are in Christ, I know that that's the truth for them as well. I'm not going to be the only one that's going to appear with Christ in glory when He returns. It's going to be you too. How wonderful is that? I can rejoice because I know that you are saved. I know that, that you are beloved of God. So I shouldn't just sing for joy for myself, but I can sing for joy for you too. How wonderful is that truth? I will see you again as we stand with one another, singing hymns to the Lord to whom we owe everything with thankfulness in our hearts forever. Man, what a reason to celebrate. What a reason to have praise and thanksgiving gush out of our lips as we celebrate our Savior Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said, I do not think the church rejoices enough. We all grumble enough and groan enough but very few of us rejoice enough. Man, let that, let that not be our church, Redeemer. Let the world look at us and see a people of God at peace and rejoicing, even when it surpasses theirs and our own understanding. Now, the last command that Paul gives us in our text this morning is, is really kind of the overarching command of, of all of this. The one that really is the one that kind of hangs above it all. Verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks, there it is again, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Now, this is reminiscent of what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Paul says that in regards to his life and the way that he is to live it, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he continues on, and he says, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul is saying here that the life that he now lives is completely and utterly to be lived in and through Christ. His old self died on the cross with Jesus, and the new life he is living is to be done in faith in the one who loved him and gave himself for him. So brothers and sisters, Paul wants no part of our lives to not be touched by Christ. No part of our lives is to go untouched by Christ. When Paul says, whatever you do, friends, he means everything you do. That's what, that's what it means in the Greek, too. Whatever you do, he means everything that you do. You are to do it in the name of Jesus, which simply means for the glory of his name. So we are to be, we are to be husbands for Jesus, right? We are to be wives for Jesus. We are to be friends for Jesus. Parents, employees, neighbors, citizens, business owners, homemakers. Every nook and cranny in your life is to be done with a passion to see the name of Jesus glorified in it. Every interaction, every mundane chore, every thought, every action should be done to lift up the name of Jesus. And praise God when we fail, right? Because he forgives us. We must remember that we are to live with the awareness of our new life in Christ. Like Paul, we are no longer our own, but we are his. Now, as I wrap up this sermon, you will notice there is a bit of repetition going on in this passage, as I mentioned before. As Paul ends verse 17, he says that all we do is to be done in the name of Jesus. And he ends by saying, yet again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so three times Paul says that we are to have thankful hearts to God. And I believe the reason for this, as do a couple other commentators that I read, is because as these false teachers, it's one of the reasons why, why Paul was writing this letter to the church in Colossae, because these false teachers were trying to come in and pull them away from Christ. But as, as these false teachers were infiltrating the church, they were again trying to, they were trying to pull people away from Christ. They were trying to pull them away from him. But they were doing so by telling them that Jesus wasn't enough. That was their main tactic. Jesus wasn't enough. That faith in him alone won't cut it, and they all needed all of these excess things, such as obedience to the Old Testament law or this aesthetic lifestyle where they gave up all the, all the good things in life because if you do so, that will make you more holy, more spiritual. That will take you to the next level of your Christianity. But Paul is pulling the mind of the Colossian church away from those things, away from those false teachings, and calling them to be thankful to God that everything that they need, everything they need for salvation, everything that they need for holiness, everything that they need to, uh, for, the good, for good relationships amongst one another is all found in Christ. 
All of it is found in Christ. So we, we need nothing else. We need no one else. We need no other form of philosophy or religion or, or secret knowledge. All we need is Christ alone. And so let us do all for the sake of his name and give thanks to God the Father through him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much. God, for all of these wonderful blessings that you have given us. Lord, it is hard to wrap our minds around, Lord, but, but even the most poor and destitute Christian who, who has you, who has Christ, is more wonderfully rich, has more treasures than the richest man in the world who doesn't know you, who doesn't have you. And so even as we go through this life, and even as, as we experience sin in, in our own lives, and, and we experience sin of others against us, and we, we see all these evils, we experience death and pain and suffering, Lord, I pray that God, that you, Lord, that you protect our hearts and mind with your peace. Lord, with the peace that comes from knowing that your word is true, that you keep your promises. Lord, that we have a weight of glory waiting for us. We have an eternity that will be spent with you. Lord, we love you. We are so thankful for you. I pray this in your son's name.